Our final sort of more formal didactic lecture is um, the next one. I just want to remind people we do have a stretch break after this for five minutes, so try to hang on if you can, although I know a bio break probably is calling for some of you before then. Um, and then we're going to have really exciting cases that are going to delve into some of the stuff a little bit more. Really excited to have um, Dr. Johnson with us today. He came all the way just for one night from Denver uh, to do this talk, which is a new talk for us um, and which I know he worked very hard to put together. Um, he's going to be discussing not just vaccines, but the whole concept of immunoprotection um, of HIV and sexually transmitted infections in the context of sexual health. Uh, many of you may know Steve from his work leading um, the HIV care program at the University of Colorado. And as we heard earlier, he's also be, he will also be chairing the upcoming Ryan, White's clinic, Ryan White Clinical Conference, which is happening in December. So Steve, thank you for coming. So uh, thank you very, uh, very much. You may have wondered where the term immunoprotection came from. I had the, the first one to have that question when it arrived back to me after my slide review. But, but we're talking mostly about vaccines, uh, immune globulin, uh, so immunoprotection. So if you think vaccines, you'll be remarkably close to my topic. So I do have this one disclosure um, to list. So I want to start actually with just uh, kind of an updated guidelines on immunizations uh, in persons living with HIV, and then to focus on the subset of vaccines that I think are, are most associated with sexual transmission, and of course the HPV vaccine is our really first cancer prevention vaccine. We'll identify the potential role of, the, of this new uh, hepatitis B vaccine with a novel adjuvant in HIV care and uh, we'll uh, list the expanded indications for the HPV vaccine. So start out with just a large uh, list of the diseases for which there are uh, vaccines available. Uh, I think this is roughly accurate with 28 different infectious diseases, most recent being uh, a dengue vaccine uh, approved for a very uh, specific uh, indication. And this list keeps growing as, as the years go by. Now, I've put together a, uh, an adult immunization schedule for people living with HIV, and this is you know, very similar to what you'll find if you look at page two of the immunization schedules for the CDC, where the, that back page, uh, or at the end of the opportunistic infection guidelines, there's also a, uh, a graph like this. There, there's a couple nuances that I have put in that uh, that uh, I'll mention as we go along. But let me just run through this quickly here. The, uh, at the top here is the influenza vaccine. This high-dose flu, age over 65, that's actually just my little spin. Uh, I feel like the data is, is fairly strong. There's even a paper that shows a mortality benefit. Um, but the CDC just uh, expresses no preference in terms of what vaccine you use. I saw my friend uh, Dr. Magiros in the audience from Colorado. Kaiser there has been giving the high-dose flu vaccine to HIV-positive patients of all age. So there's, uh, there's different uh, practices. You'll see uh, the HPV vaccine here, uh, including the uh, traditional recommendations up to age 26 in women, up to age uh, 21 in men, except up to 26 in men who have sex with men. And you can see the new section now that we're going to talk about uh, about a higher age group. The uh, recombinant zoster vaccine, which has largely replaced the, uh, the live vaccine. 
MMR is a hot topic right now because of the measles outbreak uh, that's occurred, 75% uh, of which I believe is in New York. So most of the epidemic is here. The, uh, the pneumococcal uh, vaccines and a, and a very complicated schedule, and then the hepatitis A and B vaccines. This is the other little variation from the practice. If you look at the hepatitis A vaccine in, in the standard guidelines, it's a purple because they say it's for specific indications. One of those indications is men who have sex with men, which uh, for many of us is, is the majority of our practice. And I think most HIV practices like ours tend to routinize the hepatitis A vaccine and give it to everybody. And then uh, finally, the, uh, the relatively new meningococcal conjugate vaccines. So I want to kind of focus then on those that I think uh, would be uh, important for sexual health. And so hepatitis A vaccine, hepatitis B vaccine, and then HPV uh, vaccine are the three that are, that are really uh, uh, discussed in the CDC STD treatment guidelines. But the meningococcal vaccine has also been associated with uh, intimate or non-intimate contact, and so I'll include that as well. So there's been a, an outbreak of hepatitis A. The, the, the issue with hepatitis A in the United States is, is that a generation or two ago, it was a ubiquitous infection of childhood, so that uh, due to conditions like uh, crowding, poor sanitation, uh, lack of food safety, uh, this became uh, a very common infection in childhood. But as our society has changed, separate housing, safer foods, and so on, there is now a, a significant cohort of adults who are hepatitis A seronegative. I think in the NHANES survey, about a third of adults were seropositive. And so now you have this uh, large population of susceptible individuals. So you have this really older group that are probably immune. And now, of course, in pediatrics, we have more routine uh, provision of the hepatitis A vaccine. But among a large part of adults, they're at risk. And, and so we've seen these outbreaks. And this is just a, a slide showing you kind of the uptick in the epidemio uh, epidemiology of hepatitis A. And, and we've recently had a, an outbreak uh, in Colorado Springs in Colorado. And this is just a slide kind of showing where kind of the outbreaks have been uh, most prominent, uh, color-coded uh, as of August 9th, 2019. So these are the actual indications for the hepatitis A vaccine. You can see the, the top is, is not at risk, but one protection from hepatitis A. But then the specific indications for hepatitis A are as listed, chronic liver disease. You can see men who have sex with men, injection or non-injection drug use, um, homelessness, travel to countries with higher intermediate uh, endemic hepatitis A. And, and you can kind of see how within our HIV practice we would tend to uh, to routinize this recommendation to, to everyone. The uh, IDSA HIV primary care guidelines is another source of information on uh, vaccines. Uh, I, that, uh, those guidelines are in the process of being updated. So probably within the next year, I would guess. I'm not part of that, but I'm just aware that they're being updated. And, uh, and these guidelines tend to mirror what the CDC guidelines are, uh, but also with the caveat that vaccination can be considered for all uh, non-immune patients. As you know, there's, there's a couple ways to give the hepatitis A vaccine. There's a couple formulations uh, that uh, are uh, 
um, are, are standalone uh, that are given uh, as a two-dose series. Um, there's also the hepatitis A and B combination vaccine that can be given as a standard series, but also has an accelerated schedule. For those of you that are involved with travel medicine, this, this uh, rapid schedule for the combination vaccine is, is actually very helpful since people tend to schedule their travel visits uh, too soon to when they're going to travel. And I guess part of uh, the topic immunoprotection is to point out that in addition to active immunization for hepatitis A, there is also the uh, um, possibility of using uh, immune globulin as a form of post-exposure prophylaxis. As these guidelines indicate from the MMWR last year, um, the, the, the vaccine itself also is a, is a very effective uh, uh, strategy for post-exposure prophylaxis. I'm going to move on and talk about hepatitis B, which, of course, is transmitted very similarly to HIV. And so people that, that enter into our HIV practices, there, there's often a significant seroprevalence of hepatitis B. But there's, it's still important to, uh, to find individuals and, uh, and, uh, and, and get them immunized. There has been a, a gradual decline in the number of hepatitis B cases in the United States, uh, probably, probably at least in part. Uh, due to the, the rollout of vaccines, including uh, in adolescents. So I'm going to do my first audience uh, response question here about the hepatitis B vaccine. So this is an HIV-positive patient with a CD4 count of 180, has received three doses of the uh, standard hepatitis B vaccine. Uh, hepatitis B surface antibody testing is negative. So what is your next step? And here are your four options. You can give a booster dose of the standard hepatitis B vaccine and then check a titer. You can repeat the whole series, the three-dose hepatitis B vaccine series, and repeat a titer. You can use the higher-dose hepatitis B vaccine that we use in hemodialysis patients and then recheck a titer. Or you can administer the two-dose series of the new recombinant hepatitis B vaccine that has a novel adjuvant. It's, it's, so, so this is the... Uh, yeah, so this, this is what you call a, a perfect audience, audience response system. So it's, uh, um, well, there's probably data for the first three answers. About a quarter of you would uh, just give another uh, dose and check a titer. Uh, a quarter of you would, uh, uh, would uh, repeat the whole series. A quarter of you would give the higher dose. And a quarter of you would give the new vaccine. So, so, so what do we actually know? These are the hepatitis B vaccine schedules. Uh, there's two uh, formulations that uh, we're calling the standard recombinant hepatitis B vaccine. One of the things prior to this, we, we've been trying to hide kind of brand names and so on since, since that's what we should do for CME. But, but obviously, especially in the vaccine world, brand name, names are often uh, uh, what's used for recognition. But uh, I think you can kind of figure this out. Um, but anyway, so the standard uh, recombinant uh, hepatitis B vaccine, and then there's the new one with the novel adjuvant, and then uh, as discussed under hepatitis A, there's also the combination vaccine as well. But what about uh, hepatitis B vaccination and HIV infection? Um, well, this is taken directly from the uh, opportunistic infection guidelines. Um, so in patients who pre present to care with a lower CD4 count, vaccination should not be deferred 
We're going to talk a little bit about this a little bit later until CD4 counts increase to greater than 350 because some people do respond um, at lower CD4 counts. And then they mentioned the studies that, uh, that in those individuals with HIV who did not respond, 25 to 50% responded to an additional vaccine dose and 44 to 100% responded to a three-dose revaccination series. So the, the guideline evidence is, is because of the better efficacy in, in achieving uh, seroconversion, uh, the three-dose uh, vaccination. So option number two uh, there. Although I think you could argue uh, potentially with all three approaches. There's a couple other statements that, that are, are mentioned in the guidelines. Some specialists might delay revaccination until antiretroviral therapy results in a sustained increase in CD4 cell count. You can see that's a C rating, indicating that it's an expert opinion without any data. And then there, there are also are a couple randomized trials that have shown that four doses of double dose of the recombinant vaccine produces higher uh, anti-hepatitis B surface antibody titers than three doses of standard uh, dose vaccine. So again, I think probably uh, based on what we know, answers two and three would be reasonable based on, uh, on, on what we know. Now there is this new hepatitis B vaccine with a novel adjuvant uh, that was approved by the FDA uh, in November of 2017. Uh, it's a two-dose series separated by one month and in the, in, there were about four clinical trials that led to licensure. The seroprotection rate was achieved, and 90 to 95% of subjects receiving the two-dose uh, compared to 65 to 81% of those receiving three doses of the standard uh, recombinant hepatitis B vaccine. So uh, certainly better uh, than what we've measured with our standard vaccines. So what do the guidelines say about this particular uh, uh, vaccine. These were updated actually relatively recently when the hepatitis B uh, series was, was updated. Um, and it really kind of reiterated the studies that, that uh, this vaccine is more immunogenic and uh, the protection rate uh, was higher for this two-dose series compared to the standard three-dose hepatitis B vaccine. But they also mentioned that the safety and efficacy of this uh, with HIV has not been studied. I learned at our faculty dinner last night that a study is going to be started that will look at this vaccine uh, in people uh, uh, living with HIV. So right now, it, it sounds like a good idea, uh, but, uh, but it, it has not been studied. We have used this vaccine some in our healthcare workers who have not responded to the standard series. Similar to hepatitis A, there also is the, the, uh, the potential role of passive immunization uh, in hepatitis B. And so uh, 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 if hepatitis B immune globulin is given, it typically is used as an adjunct to, to vaccination. Before I leave the subject of hepatitis B, I just kind of want to review one study, which I think is kind of a potentially fun fact about hepatitis B. Uh, and this has actually been seen in several cohorts, but this is the one I remember from one of our uh, international AIDS conferences. And this was a, a study looking at the protective effect of our hepatitis B active antiretroviral agents against primary hepatitis B virus infection. So as you can see, this was a, a retrospective study, and they found a subset of men who had negative hepatitis B serologies with a second serology available for uh, evaluation. And then they calculated the, the incident rate of hepatitis B, and you can see it was 
per 100 person years. And it was higher if you were not on hepatitis B active drugs. It was lower if you were on hepatitis B active drugs. And it was actually really low if you were on tenofovir. So really, it, what, it, what it means is our hepatitis B active drugs are a form of PrEP for hepatitis B. And uh, given the prevalence of tenofovir-based regimens, that probably is part of the factors that we don't see a lot of acute hepatitis B in our patients who are in care on an antiretroviral therapy. This is not a reason not to vaccinate people who are, who are uh, not immune, but it's probably an additional protective effect. All right, so we, I have another uh, audience response question now, and we're going to move on to the uh, human papillomavirus vaccine. And uh, this is about your HIV clinical practice. If you're not in an HIV clinical practice, then just maybe pretend, pretend you are and kind of <laughs> vote anyways. So the first is, is that uh, uh, in terms of categories for the HPV vaccine, women up to age 26 and men up to age 21. The second one is women and men up to age 26. The third, uh, or C, is women and men up to age 45. And then D is all persons living with HIV infection regardless of age. Well, great. So most of you, uh, um, you know, the guidelines have traditionally been women up to age 26 and men up to age 21, except for men who have sex with men up to 26. And so I think, again, given the, the, the usually that that most of our men uh, in our HIV practices are men who have sex with men, I can see why this would be the number one answer. Um, I find it interesting that 30 percent are uh, are giving it to individuals of older age. I actually just emailed our vaccine pharmacist this morning just to because we started to do this as well, um, and just wondered if we've had any kind of pushback from payers, and uh, uh, including Medicaid, and, and we actually haven't uh, in Colorado. So um, um, apparently, uh, apparently, uh, it's getting covered. So of course, uh, HPV uh, estimated prevalence of 79 million persons in the U.S., 14 million cases each year. And importantly, uh, over 40,000 HPV-associated cancer, cancers in 2015, uh, including as listed here. Most of these are actually due to the HPV types 16 or 18, which was really present in all of the vaccines that were licensed, the initial quadrivalent, then the bivalent, and now the nine-valent. However, 12% uh, are attributed to other HPV types that are actually contained in the nine-valent uh, vaccine, which is actually the only vaccine that's currently available now. And this is just kind of reiterating that, that of 150 HPV subtypes, uh, 40 uh, can cause anal or genital warts. This is a study that I like to kind of quote, even though there's some more recent studies. This was a study from about 10 years ago comparing different cohorts. Uh, the HIV-positive cohort were actually two cohorts. One was the HIV outpatient study, or HOPS, and the other was the ASD cohort. And then the, uh, the general uh, cancer cohort was the, a large national cohort called SEER. And basically what this table does is it looks at the ratio of individual cancers within these two HIV cohorts compared to the general population. So the way you read this is actually that, that the incidence of anal cancer in, this, uh, uh, in these cohorts was actually 43 times that seen within the uh, general population. And I've kind of bolded those cancers that are, uh, 
are uh, HPV uh, related. And I think, you know, many of you who work now uh, in HIV and with, with people who are on effective antiretroviral therapy, non-AIDS cancers is now one of our big causes of morbidity and mortality. So the timeline of the HPV vaccine development, the approval of the uh, four-valent uh, vaccine was in 2006, and then that was followed by a two-valent, and then now the nine-valent, um, which is now the only available vaccine. So if you remember last year, the FDA approved the age range of the nine-valent vaccine to persons aged 27 to 45, and then uh, the ACIP voted, and, and now here uh, very recently published in the MMWR recommendations um, for the use of the vaccine in some persons aged 17 to 45. And that publication in the MMWR is very important because that kind of makes it public health law and then the uh, federal payers and the insurers have to kind of get in line and provide coverage for the vaccine. And here just in, in, in more detail is what happened very recently. So it was just uh, less than a month ago that the, this recommendation was published in the MMWR. And this is actually not a blanket recommendation that everybody in this age group receive the vaccine. It really is uh, uh, recommended as a shared decision-making uh, model or a discussion. And, uh, but the guidance does list uh, some of the things to, to consider. Um, um, and you can see it's listed here. At any age, a new sex partner is a risk for a new HPV infection. Um, most sexually active persons have been exposed to some HPV types, although not necessarily all of the types in the vaccine. Uh, 11 or 12-year-olds still remain the best target group for the HPV vaccine. But, but I think the assumption that people have been exposed to all of these types at a certain age is, is what's kind of being challenged here. So um, the kind of official party line is that HPV vaccines do not prevent progression of HPV, HPV infection. So these are, are uh, preventive vaccines, not therapeutic vaccines. There have been some kind of intriguing studies, though, that, that, that provide some suggestion that maybe the natural history may be altered to some degree. And, and there are additional HPV vaccines that, that are trying to look at that issue as a therapeutic vaccine to, to pr perhaps change the natural history of established uh, dysplasia. So I finally want to talk a little bit about uh, meningococcal disease. Um, this, is a, uh, uh, this is an uncommon infection. Uh, it's actually uncommon in people living with HIV but it's very uncommon in, uh, in people without HIV. And so when you look at studies, the, the risk is about 5 to 13-fold higher among HIV-positive patients as opposed to the general population. And so about, about three years ago, there were, uh, there were uh, new guidelines that came out uh, recommending routinely the meningococcal conjugate vaccine. And this is the table extracted from the, uh, from the uh, uh, recommendations, and so uh, uh, based on, on age, uh, again, for adults, it's typically two doses of the vaccine, 8 to 12 weeks apart, and then a, a boosting interval at five years. There is a mention in the, uh, in the uh, uh, publication about a lower immunogenic in people with a lower CD4 percent, that's mentioned.
So we are routinely giving that vaccine as well. And again, maybe one other study that's kind of a fun fact while we're talking about meningococcal vaccine is this study that, uh, that was actually looking at the effectiveness of a meningococcal B vaccine uh, in New Zealand, a case control study, and actually showed a uh, protective effect, albeit modest, uh, against the occurrence of gonorrhea. Um, I haven't mentioned the gonococcal vaccine or the chlamydia vaccine because they don't exist. Uh, <laughs> they're under study, and, and you can see how old I am, but one of my, one of my uh, lab projects as a fellow was uh, evaluating a failed military gonococcal vaccine trial that was done in 1984. So that was, you know, working on a vaccine 34 years ago, and we're still trying to trying to get it right. But anyways, this is this this type of result is is intriguing for the field, because after seeing Dr. Morazzo's uh, scary talk about drug resistance, it uh, it would be great to have a vaccine approach for for gonorrhea. I just have a, a final couple slides here. It looks like uh, I'll have to slow down because I'm. I have two, yeah, a longer bathroom break, okay. Uh, one of the kind of subset of things, of course, in our HIV practices is uh, with people doing so well, people are traveling a lot. And to get back on the theme of this conference on sexual health, you know, some people travel and, and have sex when they travel and uh, meet new partners and so on. And so really part of the pre-travel uh, advice, uh, kind of focusing uh, and make sure people are, are up to date uh, on vaccines and other strategies to prevent uh, sexual transmitted diseases are, uh, are important. And then just for completeness sake, I list some of the other vaccines that are often frequently discussed as part of our uh, pre-travel visits. I think this is all pretty familiar to a lot of you. So one of the things that I think is, is kind of missing from the literature in a way is, is, is to answer this question about timing of vaccines and people uh, living with HIV, especially people who are immunosuppressed or pre pre uh, present with lower uh, CD4 counts and so on. It always seems kind of intuitive that if you had somebody with a CD4 count of 150 and they're going to start a potent agent and within three to six months they're going to have a CD4 count of 500. Kind of makes sense maybe to, to wait and so on. But there's actually relatively little guidance to do that. I think, I think most of the guidance is, is us just kind of thinking or clinical judgment. So I actually just put together this table just um, uh, brought from a variety of different source, sources, the adult immunization schedule, the HIV primary care guidelines, the OI guidelines, and a, a couple articles uh, about what the advice is. And, uh, you know, apart from not giving live vaccines when people's CD4 count is less than 200, there's, uh, there's not a lot of advice. Uh, and in fact, most of the time, um, uh, the answer is, is give regardless of CD4 count. And uh, we're all kind of measured by our funders especially if you're in Ryan White programs. So you kind of like to give those five vaccines in the arm when you meet that person for the first time just so you can kind of check that box. Uh, but I still think that there's some reasonable clinical judgment uh, uh, to defer vaccinations uh, in some settings. Um, we obviously don't do it for influenza if you're right in the middle of the influenza season. But I'd be interested in other people's thoughts about this.
So in summary, vaccines play an important role in HIV primary care, um, uh, but are also available for several uh, sexually transmitted infections, and including uh, hepatitis A, B, and HPV. Hepatitis A vaccination is of increasing importance given the current outbreaks and really a large group of non-immune individuals, uh, adults. And then I'm anxious to see kind of this new formulation of hepatitis B vaccine, see, see its studies within uh, HIV positive patients because it seems like uh, uh, something that would uh, reduce the need for revaccination and, and provide greater protection. And then I think importantly, the ACP has recently expanded the age range for administration of the HPV vaccine. And I think, I think we should roll this out and actually most of the individuals that we have in care who continue to be sexually active, uh, who have more than one partner, uh, I think there are groups that we can identify and we can certainly talk about that more in the question and answer. And that's all I have and I appreciate uh, your attention. Great, thank you, Steve, for that wonderful overview. Um, so we do have some time for questions. I thank you for also being on time. Actually, some really good questions. Um, several about HPV, so let me ask you the first one. Um, if you have a patient, um, or if you are a person, I guess that's not likely, that um, who got the two or four valent HPV vaccine as a young person, age 10 to 12, is there value to updating when you are in your 20s to the nine valent HPV vaccine? Yeah, so well, the, the new guidelines about HPV vaccine do address that and, and say that the, the nine-valent vaccine uh, can be offered to individuals, uh, not just adolescents, but, but uh, young adults who have received previous formulations. I mean, it, it intuitively would have value because of the uh, additional uh, coverage of the vaccine, including additional oncogenic types, but I'm not aware of any studies that would show that, but, but I think you can routinely offer the nine-valent vaccine to people who have previously gotten the other vaccine. Yep, I would definitely agree with that. Um, uh, this is a common question that we get a lot. Um, if you have um, a patient with a negative surface antibody to hepatitis B, um, but a core antibody positive, do you recommend the vaccine body? So isolated core antibody positivity. Yeah, so there's, if you go to the hepatitis B section of the, of the CDC guidelines, uh, you can actually look at this little table, and there's this, like, differential diagnosis of an isolated core antibody. Um, it can be a false positive test. It can be low-level active hepatitis B um, where the surface antigen uh, is negative. It can be in this little window period after acute hepatitis B where the antigen goes away and you've yet to develop a surface antibody. Um, we consider these folks to be uh, uh, non-immune and, and candidates for the vaccine, provided that you first exclude active hepatitis B. So we've typically done hepatitis B DNA levels in this setting. The question comes up is if people are on hepatitis B active antiretroviral therapy, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can't really distinguish. Um, but in general, we've been immunizing people who are core antibody uh, positive, surface antibody negative, and don't have active hepatitis B. 
Right, uh, a great, great response. Um, some questions about HPV that I think are interesting. Um, um, would you recommend checking titers? Is there such a thing for the HPV vaccine or to determine administration of the HPV vaccine? Well, I kind of looked in the audience and saw people shaking their heads. And, and, <laughs> and I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do too. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, I suspect within within research trials and things like that, there's uh, obviously for the HPV studies, they look at immunogenicity and so on. I, I'm not aware of using that in clinical practice and never have. I would agree with that for sure. And to get nine um, antibody titers would be prohibitively expensive and not particularly helpful. Um, but it's a good question. Um, this is another one of those paradoxical questions that some clever person in the audience who's um, knowledgeable about this uh, topic area asked, why am I always told that the CD4 is the most important in determining, sorry, CD4% is the most in de important in determining um, immune competence but also always told to wait for a CD4 count greater than 200 and not for the CD4 percent greater than 15 percent. Well, I mean, first of all, the two tests are not, are not independent tests. So we have a lab that calculates your lymphocyte count and you have a lab that looks at the percent, the CD4, and those two things get multiplied together and and that's where you come up with the CD4 count. So, so they actually are not really kind of independent tests. I think, you know, we use the CD4 percent to kind of interpret falls in CD4 counts because HIV is a targeted uh, uh, immunodeficiency, so you, you see a decline in CD4 percent and, uh, as well as number, whereas other things like steroids and chemotherapy that wipe out all populations of lymphocytes, you, you don't see the decline in percent, you see a low count. I mean, to me, it's, it's the count that really matters. That's the actual lymphocytes that are there and functioning. Great, thank you. Um, this was is a great that clear? Yeah, it was, it was perfectly clear to me. The person who asked the question, is that clear? Okay. Can you use the mic if you wanna make a comment? Please. We flushed him out of the audience. Um, <laughs> the the um, in in it seems to me that in pediatrics, they'll look at the uh, percentage more more frequently. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I have people with with uh, um, over four hundred uh, CD four counts, and the viral and the percentages are sometimes less than fifteen. Um, so. I mean, it does make sense to say those, you know, that's the number is, is uh, what's actually going to be doing the fighting against the disease. But um, like I say, I'm always then told the CD4 percentage is the real accurate thing. Yeah, and, and actually way back when, when the multi-center AIDS cohort study looked at pneumocystis, they actually found higher rates of pneumocystis at a given CD4 count if the percent was low. And whether that reflects what the other cell population is that's, you know, um, I, I'm not sure, but I think I think the other challenge is is straightforward implementation. The CD4 count is a lot easier to just sort of say and talk about. But but I think from a functional immunological standpoint, when you're talking about function, you're probably right. It's just easier for your average sort of system to implement the count. Go ahead, please introduce yourself and then your question. So I'm Ray Reiser, um, pediatrician, actually trained at University of Alabama at Birmingham, so excited World to time. see both of you up there. <laughs> yes. Um, 
My, my question goes back to the HPV and titers. I didn't ask that question, but I was curious about it. Um, and in pediatrics, we frequently can access our patients' um, immunization history. Oftentimes, we are the individuals given that vaccine, you know, when they turn 11 years of age or have that conversation every year um, with the family to see where they're at. So what happens on the adult side in terms of an unclear vaccination history, where it's not a mandated vaccine for most states, also in the context of a, you know, it's $109 per, per vaccine dose itself. So that's where I was a little bit curious as to whether or not a titer would be a value to see, might they have gotten that when they had their other shots? I mean, it's a great question because we routinely do that when we, when an HIV patient moves in from Alabama and, and we don't know their vaccine <laughs> records. And we do hepatitis A and B antibodies, and, that's, and, and then we know they're immune, and so we do that for some of our others. I'm just not aware of it being done for HPV. What we would do is if we didn't have vaccine records, we would just revaccinate. So I have a related question, and somebody, well, somebody, let me ask two questions. One is uh, uh, someone asked whether that titer of greater than 10 international units is the final arbiter of protection against HPV if, if you, again, if, you, if people have received the vaccine. The first question, and my related question is, do you rescreen when you're thinking about boosting? Do you ever, is there ever a point when you think about the duration of immunoprotection from the hepatitis B vaccine series and start thinking about maybe we need to sort of look at the titer, say, in 10 or 15 or 20 years when people are living longer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, you know, I can say when we document immunity to individuals with hepatitis B, we tend to mark them immune mm -hmm. and, and kind of view that for life. There's a real question that if, if somebody's actually had a positive titer, and then their titer becomes arbitrarily less than 10, it's likely that at least a percentage of those are still protected and, and, and wouldn't need boosting. But I, I'm not aware of kind of a clinical trial that's really evaluated that. I haven't either. This has come up, um, Jody, go to the mic, please, um, with healthcare workers who, you know, who have come to ask, uh, you know, and said, I've got, I, got, I got immunized 20 years ago. Do you think you should, should I have my titer checked? Mm -hmm. And I don't really know what to say. Jody first and then Gary, because I think you were, I think you were going to comment on this question. Yeah, I just, I know from some uh, recent grant that there are some follow-up studies after Hep B vaccination where the duration of protection is at least 25 years. They don't know beyond that, but it looks good. It's considered by WHO to be lifelong. Great, thank you. Yeah, I think the question might be in the subset with HIV, but right. yep, yep, yeah, yep. perfect. Hi, I'm Gary Spinner from Southwest Community Health Center. Can you comment on why with the increased immunogenicity of the two-dose hepatitis B vaccine, you would feel the need to wait What for studies? I mean, we know it's got an 85 to 90% efficacy, so what, why not start using that now? I mean, I have been with my patients. Yeah, so maybe, maybe like a scientist in the audience can, uh, can <laughs> comment about this. The, 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 the novel adjuvant is this toll-like receptor agonist, and, 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 and ah. I, I think there is a potential kind of safety concern. I, I'm not even scientific enough to explain it, but I think it's, I think it's a concern, you know, most, most of these vaccines, including the shingles vaccine and so on, do get studied uh, in a subpopulation of, of people with HIV just to make sure that it doesn't have some kind of adverse effect on, 
on CD4 counts, viral load, and so on. I can't cite an example where that's occurred, but I think, I think there has been this kind of special concern about this particular adjuvant. Uh, he, uh, Dr. Gulick is nodding his head, so. Tripp says yes, but you don't have details either. No. Okay. Theoretical concern. No safety, no safety data in HIV. So, um, but just curious, Shingrix vaccine, how many people are have given that to their HIV-infected patients? A number. Okay. Interesting. Um, there is, yeah. One study. The ACTG study? Which showed safety. Showed safety. I just want to point out that the side effects of that vaccine, if you've had it, are like killer. So um, and speak from personal experience. Um, okay, what age do you stop giving the um, meningitis vaccine in the setting of HIV, or do you stop? You just, you just offer it throughout the lifespan if people have not been vaccinated? I think the guidance is you offer it throughout the lifespan. If you remember when the guidelines initially came out, the, the there you go. Hello. You got it. All right. Sorry. When when the guidelines came out, the the other kind of meningococcal go, uh, guidelines had kind of an age cutoff, um, and uh, and the the ACIP direct directly uh, said that you could give the vaccine to people over age 55 for, because of the need for ongoing vaccination. So we've actually been giving it to older individuals, both as a primary series, um, but, it, but also as a, as a boosting series. And if you look at the immunization schedule now, uh, where the meningococcal vaccines in purple, it goes kind of throughout the age range. So they don't have that kind of age 55 cutoff, which mo most of these age cutoffs with vaccines are just based on the fact that that's actually the age group that was studied. So, for example, with Tdap, it was it was just studied for an age. There was nothing magical about more toxicity with being older. But great, Dr. Yulik. Just wanted to add to that that one of the reasons that the recommendations changed was an outbreak of meningococcal disease in this city, in our own city, among MSM, um, in particular HIV infected, although HIV negative MSM as well. And currently, there's an outbreak of meningococcal disease in LA County right now. So it, it's out there. There was one several years ago in Chicago and Toronto at the same time. It, it, that's an important point. And that, you know, when I presented the data, I indicated that this is a pretty uncommon infection in HIV as well. But it is one of those things that's prone to outbreaks. And so within certain subgroups, it, and just to, just to add on to that whole um, thing about meningococcal vaccine, I want to just go back real quickly to that New Zealand um, case control study that showed a 30% uh, probable reduction in gonorrhea acquisition because there's cross-reactivity between the group B meninge vaccine and gonorrhea. Um, there will be a clinical trial probably starting next spring that NIH is funding that we'll be doing at UAB as well as Emory and uh, in Louisiana, uh, randomizing people to the uh, Bexero, the new, you know, the group B containing meninge vaccine versus placebo to look at protection from acquisition of gonorrhea. So a really interesting and exciting study that should not only help us confirm that finding, but also understand a little bit more of the correlates of immunoprotection should it occur. So keep your, um, again, keep your um, ears open for that. 
And there was a recent small study of a chlamydia vaccine trial as well. There was, 15, 30 people, right? Did you yeah. want to comment on that? No, I just, uh, I, I don't remember the specifics, but we, we talked about this as... Yeah, and Steve, Steve wanted to mention it, and I was like, well, I'm not really sure it's going to go anywhere, but it is, it's, it's exciting because I think it's, so the NIH recently funded um, three uh, coordinating research centers more, more than three, actually, but to look at vaccine development for the top three hopefully presentable STDs, um, and those include chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. I would say the gonorrhea effort is the farthest along, given that we have a vaccine that has already been licensed and actually has some theoretical potential, and well, as well as epidemiologic data. The chlamydia vaccine is interesting. There are a few groups working on it. The study that Steve's referring to was, I think, in JID, and there were 30 people, 30 women, who were randomized to placebo versus this new vaccine that targeted one of the outer major major outer membrane proteins of chlamydia. And what they showed that was noteworthy was that all 15 of the people who got the active vaccine had a very brisk um, immunoprotective response. It's not been shown yet whether that response is going to really protect against infection. But it's, it's very positive. Syphilis, I would say we're the farthest behind. Um, but it might happen. Okay, so let's take a five-minute break and come back, and we'll finish up with the cases. Thank you, and thank you, Dr. Johnson.